We got a huge guest today. Are you excited for our guest? Did you all hear what he did recently? Uh, his acquisition with Salesforce is unbelievable. I'm sure we'll talk about it. Um, we have the great, great, great Jaron Paul. Give it up for him. Look at that timing, too. Come on up here, man. All right, so I just mentioned it a little bit. Tell us what you just recently did. I'm uh, Well, recently I was just on a conference call in there, actually. How'd so. it go? It was great. It was great. Well, no, who? So I, Tell us who. No, I'm just kidding. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about selling spit. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, so... Um, after about six years of working on our startup Spiff, which does, um, which focuses on commission software, uh, we recently were acquired by Salesforce. So, awesome outcome, uh, kind of like the dream buyer for us in a lot of ways, honestly. So, super. Oh, oh my gosh! Hey, good to see you, Corey. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, so great outcome, and um, you know, an awesome experience. It's it's a crazy time right now, as you probably know. Yeah. Hard to hard to find folks that are even making investments. Um, Spiff isn't like an obvious, you know, pure play generative AI company or business. And so, um, you know, but, but I think it's such a perfect fit for Salesforce that, you know, I think it's uh, really, really exciting times. What was that process like? At what point were you like, when did those discussions begin? How were the negotiations like? Yeah. So the, the discussions began actually. So, so they were investor they're, They've been an investor in a couple rounds of Spiff. And so actually the negotiations began a couple of years back. Um, and they were, they were pretty interested in, um, deepening the relationship with Spiff, even as early as our series A. Um, and, and we knew that they were kind of thinking about the incentive compensation space because it, it seems pretty obvious. You got a CRM. Uh, that's where you kind of manage all your data around sales and marketing and service. And you've got this incredible picture of the customer. Um, but there isn't any, you know, but you've got all, and you've got uh, by far the largest group of sales folks ever logging into a software platform every single day. That, you know, they're by far the largest CRM. Uh, but there's nothing that's ever been helpful for them in terms of how they get compensated. So it's a really great, I think, kind of perfect match. So we, we knew that they were interested in this space, but they had, you know, they have, they have um, a lot of relationships with a lot of other vendors. I won't call them out by name just because I want to be uh, cautious that I'm, you know, being respectful yeah, of sure. confidentiality and all that stuff. But they had a lot of relationships with a lot of other vendors. So we didn't know if they, they were just kind of investing in us and seeing, hey, how does this go? Let's kind of see if this, how this evolves or if they really, really liked Spiff and they were going to make an acquisition offer on us. Obviously we hoped for the latter, but we also hoped we could continue to grow. And so there was a dynamic, there was definitely a period of time where they were saying, um, Hey, we want to buy you. And we were kind of saying, Hey, we're not really for sale. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, and fortunately there was some stuff that went on at Salesforce for, for a year um, where they really weren't looking at acquisitions actively and they really put that on hold. In fact, they announced that they disbanded publicly they announced that they disbanded their M and a committee. Yeah. And that was 
just after the first time they had kind of approached us. And so we felt like, wow, this is going to give us three or four years more of growth. And, um, you know, who knows what will happen? Who knows if they'll even be interested in us in the future? But we were excited about it because we felt like it could give us an ability to continue to grow and get a little bigger before we had, uh, you know, anyone kind of reach out proactively and make an acquisition offer. And you've been doing this for a long time. You started at vSpring, is that not right? Yes, I actually started my career back east at a consulting firm um, right out of undergrad. So I did my undergrad at BYU and then went uh, back east and was there for, you know, uh, almost six years, five and a half years. Oh, I see. Yeah, and then not at that company. I did business school and that company okay. back east and then came back here to vSpring, yeah. And I don't, does anybody know what vSpring is? It might be good for you to give some of the background. Yeah, of yeah. It spawned nearly every local fund at this point. It's true. It was it was one of those, um, like, um, it's it's hard to describe. That was such a surreal experience, actually. But um, but it it was it is one of those like truly historic companies in the kind of venture and startup ecosystem here at, at uh, in Utah. So yeah, I, I went to I I I kind of. Um, I was back east. I knew I wanted to do something in tech. At that time, I was totally convinced I wanted to do venture capital investing, not not directly putting all my eggs in one basket and being super, uh, you know, these high not not taking a really high risk, you know, go start a company approach. So I was obsessed with getting a venture capital um, job offer, and um, I was nowhere near qualified to be able to do that. And so what I did is I actually, um, I actually took a 10% ding on my 401k and asked vSpring if they would take me on as an intern for free, essentially. Um, I think they ended up paying me like 500 bucks or something. So it was a small amount, but I worked with a guy named JD Gardner there and then Jeff Curl, who many of you probably have heard of or know. He started Stance and, um, and LogoWorks and a bunch of other companies and now is at Pelion. Skullcandy. And Skullcandy. Sorry, I forgot. Skullcandy. Um, so yeah, I, I worked with those two and, um, really got my kind of grounding in, in venture capital. And then I went back to business school and then at the end, and, uh, I also had a really good friend named Gavin Christensen who I had, uh, he and I were like best friends in undergrad. And so when I went to monitor, um, a consulting firm, I actually recruited him over to monitor. And then when I left vSpring, they were saying, they said, Hey, do you know any other associates who'd be great? And I said, you should definitely talk to Gavin. So I introduced Gavin to vSpring and, uh, yeah, I'll take credit for launching his career in venture capital. So you should. And then, yep. uh, out of vSpring came kickstart came signal peak Mercado. Yeah. Not Pelion. I don't think. Not Pelion. No, Pelion was actually around before yeah, vSpring. They were called say. UV, yeah. Utah Ventures, and then UV Partners. I think they're the original OG, actually. Yeah, uh, I think so, too. Yeah. So uh, after you leave vSpring, what's the first company you started? So I actually – so let me think about that. So, yeah, I went to business school, and I quickly – you know, I, I was like – I was still on this venture gig where I was like, I really want to do venture capital. Um, seems like high prestige and – high pay and, and no risk, you know, and, um, so no I, work and, and like no work too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it seems like the best of best, of best of all worlds. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I, as I looked at some of the folks who had been in venture, I realized that there's like kind of two paths. There's, I'll call it like a classical path where you have some very hardcore, um, 
you know, um, science, you know, math or science background in undergrad from an Ivy league. And then you go to work for a consulting firm and then you go into venture capital for venture capital or you start a company. So when I was at, um, business school, I started two companies. Um, one was a company called Boardlink, and that's what I did immediately after business school was kind of get that funded through uh, a company called Thompson, Thompson Reuters, who maybe you guys have heard of. And then, and then I started another company, which went on to become Scalar Partners here uh, locally. So that was really – those were my, really my first two uh, startups right out of uh, business school. What were you doing right before Spiff? Right before Spiff, I started – I had started another company called CapShare, yeah. um, which competes with Carta. <laughs> and um, that was uh, – that was a journey. I mean, a crazy journey, um, you know – interesting to kind of get your get your head handed to you in, in certain ways you know and, and be out competed in a lot of ways but in another way I really learned I call them we call them actually um, I've co-founded a lot of these companies with Matt Stapleton he and I are just super super close I, uh, I love him like a brother and um, we we had a thing that we when we were at capture we called it weed strategies so not marijuana um, it's it's uh, you know like think about how weeds grow. And they grow in these weird corners of your lot that you don't look at, and they're um, and they're hard to kill. They're really hard to kill, and but they're kind of ugly, and uh, they proliferate, you know, rapidly. And so that was kind of we we were get, we were so outfunded relative to Carta that we we would always we took our inspiration from weeds. We would be like, how do weeds grow? How do we? And we ended up doing pretty well. Um, we didn't raise a lot of money. We raised $2.1 million in that venture and ended up selling it for right around $20 million. Um, so our investors got a good return. We we did well, and um, yeah, it was a good exit. What did you learn at CapShare that made you want to start Spiff? Okay, yeah. So um, Matt Stapleton and I had been running commissions at all, all the companies we had worked at previously. And um, I look for a couple of things, and I still do actually, and um, – I have some ideas. Salesforce may watch this. So um, I have some ideas in Salesforce. I'm all in on Salesforce. I really am. But I have some ideas long term. Most of my ideas, I, I'm really obsessed with um, Office of the CFO. So I really like CFO businesses. Um, I speak that language. It's kind of a unique language. And once you learn it, it it's a, a bit of a competitive advantage. Um, I really, I'm really obsessed with Excel, Excel, Microsoft Excel and replacing it. Um, in many, many different instances. And so when we started um, Spiff, it, it came, it was a scratch your own itch. It was like, a, hey, we have a commission problem. Um, uh, we would, I remember we walked into a room where Billy Rogers, who still works, works with us now at Spiff, but at that time he was head of sales for CapShare. We walked into a room and he always have, we gave everybody two monitors and he always had two monitors up. And one of them had Salesforce on it. And can you guess what the other one had? I'm sure you probably can, but it was an Excel spreadsheet with his commissions on it. And um, I think the combination of us always looking for Excel replacement technologies, the fact that we were seeing this with our own sales team where it was like one of their, we called it the second screen of sales. We'd be like, well, the first screen of sales is Salesforce. The second screen of sales, what's that? Well, it's their commissions. So we saw that. And, um, you know, and we were just coming off of an exit. And I think those three things just kind of, you know, kind of came together and we felt like we could really uh, build something special. What did you, who, did you raise immediately? 
when you started? Just because you you would have the capacity to do that, given your track record. Yeah, thanks, Clint. <laughs> yeah, uh, we we did raise pretty quickly. I don't know that we raised immediately. I think we put 500k of our own money into the what would be almost like a pre-seed round, um, but pretty quickly, hot on the heels of that. Um, actually, um, Gavin Christensen at, at Kickstarter, who's you know a long long-term mm-hmm. friend, and Diogo um, at Album who had been an investor, both of which had been investors in CapShare, uh, came, you know, came knocking and, um, we, you know, we worked hard to broker a deal that would allow for them both to come into the round. Um, and, uh, and that, then that was our seed round and Peterson as well. So yeah. I, I kind of, I kind of said like, Hey, who are all the seed funds in Utah? Cause I, I love them all and I have great relationships with them all. And, I said, hey, is there a way to like, you know, it's like Shark Tank when you're saying, hey, could all the sharks come in on this deal? You know, so I tried to kind of do do that and um, it worked out. So and they've been all been awesome. So how long did it take for you to realize you had product market fit and you had something with Smith? Yeah. So there's kind of two. I kind of think about the world of startups uh, in a framework where there are ideas that have a really, really high novelty factor. Um, but maybe a dubious or questionable utility factor. So there's kind of like a matrix with like novelty on one side and then utility on the other side where it's like, Hey, this is really new, but I don't know if it's going to be very useful. Right. And the, the ideas that we all, um, glamorize and maybe obsess about are in that upper right quadrant. They're highly, highly novel and highly useful. Um, and I would put, um, Airbnb when it started in that. That's a classic example. Like I'm, I'm of a generation and I'm sure you can tell by looking at me where, you know, sleeping on someone's couch is dubious in terms of its utility for me. Um, Uber, I think would kind of fit into that upper right quadrant as well. Um, where it's like, at least when it started, it was like, do I want to take a ride with someone? I don't even know. Am I going to end up dead, you know, somewhere? Um, great, amazing ideas. And those are often the biggest outcomes. I tend to dwell a little bit more in that. Like, I guess it would be like the bottom right quadrant, which is obvious high utility and maybe a little less novelty. And so, um, to be honest, we had product market fit almost immediately with Spiff. I mean, like basically immediately we have, there were existing competitors in the space. Mm -hmm. So you, you have almost immediate product market fit. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Hey, uh, questions. Yeah, let's let's take some questions here. Tell us more about your process for assessing ideas, like Spiff, obvious utility, Capshare, obvious utility. Tell us more about like how you decide what ideas to pursue. How do you, you talk to? Tell us the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question, and thanks, thanks so much for asking it. Um, yeah, I think earlier in my career, I had like a, you know, I'm, I'm kind of quote unquote classically trained in, in business. I went to business school and, and I actually learned a lot of business school. I, I think it gets a bad rap. Um, and, and I think there are definitely times where you shouldn't do it, but, um, but I learned a lot in business school. So I, I kind of earlier in my career, I actually had like a framework and I would look at like market size and I would look at like competition. And there's this framework we used at vSpring called the five M's. And it might be useful to some of you. It was like, and I might, I'm going to get it a little bit wrong, but it was like market. So you'd look at the market, you'd look at the management team. And so when you're starting a company, you can use these same, these same M's market management team, the money, which is how you're going to fund it. And the model, which is like how you're going to actually 
what the business model is and if it's going to throw off uh, cash in the right ways. And, and I'm forgetting what the other M was, but it essentially stood for like product. And so, um, and so those are uh, roughly the, 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 the category, the categories that I'll look at whenever I'm thinking of a new idea. It's like, Hey, is it a big market? And are the competitive dynamics attractive management team? I I'll use like, um, I'll use like the hedgehog principle. Like, is there something about me or my team that would give us a, a, a unique advantage here that would be hard to replicate? Um, and then I'll look at, you know, the, the, the product and see, could we create a really unique and, and cool product here? Can we fund it? So those are some of the things I've typically used as I've gotten older and done this now, you know, four times ideas. Honestly, I can, I feel like I just know it pretty instantaneously when I'm like, Oh, yep, that's a good idea. You know, and so I don't go through a formal process anymore. I just kind of I'm like, yeah, that that's that's probably going to be a good idea. <laughs> you know, uh, did that help? Hope that helped. Okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah, Jaron, thanks. This is awesome. Congrats on the the sale. Um, Thank you. I uh, I'm friends with Sean Jacobson. Uh, oh my gosh, I yeah, love he's, Sean he's, he's so great. much. You want to tell talk about Norwest and then. Didn't you also take money from Salesforce Ventures? Yeah, I took money from Salesforce, Lightspeed, and Norwest in terms of like the out-of-state folks. So that's awesome that you know, Sean. Um, I I could almost – I mean, I, I don't know that I could say enough good about Sean Jacobson. I mean, he will be uh, in everything that I ever do if I can get him. <laughs> he's, he's amazing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and I, I think I can maybe make this really applicable to Utah around like – when do you raise in, in state? When do you raise out of state? How do you think about those two things? Um, we have such an a, a awesome ecosystem here. And I, th I think it's important to try to, uh, it's so funny to say it's about venture capital, but buy local. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think I think we do need to support our ecosystem here. And, and we have amazing, I mean, Gavin's been on my boards now of the last two companies and Gavin Christensen at Kickstart. This, this is an amazing investor. I mean, I, I think Gavin... So I, you know, I, I'd hold up Gavin with all the, all the board members that I've worked with um, in my career, and including very, very large uh, out-of-state venture capital firms that have very big names, like, um, like the ones I mentioned. Um, but uh, I would say, in terms of um, there, I, you know, I tend to, I, as you can tell, where I tried to raise my seed round from like three Utah companies, I, I try to. I try to bring a, a broad range of folks that I think will add a lot of value to the venture that I'm starting. And uh, I do think there's absolutely critical and important value that can come from out-of-state investors. Um, I, like I mentioned with Norwest, I would do it again with Sean every day of the week. There's always a question of partner and fund. Um, partners should take priority in that by far. Um, but Norwest is an incredible fund as well. Super well-known, great track record. Um, a, a couple of the other partners there, um, Scott has, have, have done a couple of deals here in Utah and were super helpful to me. Um, and on the Lightspeed side, I worked with Arsham Marmarzadeh, who's an amazing investor. And I think one of the like rising stars there and, and he was incredible. So hope that answered your question or helped. Hi. So I'm curious from somebody that doesn't have the classical background in business, hearing from you, any recommendations on if you're trying to go into entrepreneurship, maybe have like a technical background or some other background, what are the areas that are most worth investing time in to learn? And yeah. is there like a time sequence, learn this first, then learn that, and maybe don't worry about this until later, but focus on this at this point in the 
business entrepreneurship? Totally. Uh, love that question. So I'm, so I'm, I'm a pretty, uh, so I tend to uh, prioritize technical talent. I think it's, it's harder to get a STEM background and to become really, really strong in software, for example, or building software than it is to understand the principles of raising around or assessing an opportunity or um, thinking about financing. And so I, I tend to feel like folks like yourself with a technical background are actually op- really, really, especially as we move more into the future where I think it's everything's moving faster and, and it's becoming more technical, not less technical, um, to, to really create, to, to succeed. Um, I, I actually, so I taught myself how to code 15 years ago now. And I, I started when I was really little, my mom had me, my mom was amazing and she had, she, she took me to programming lessons on an Apple IIe. So like I, I started when I was really little and then picked it back up about 15 years ago and I still write code to this day. And so, um, I really believe in a technical background qualifying you for a lot of opportunities if you want to build software. So, um, so my, my advice, which is worth what you're paying for it is, um, is yeah, there's, there's no one path to entrepreneurship. Certainly don't think you need to go get a MBA to become a great uh, entrepreneur. And I'm sure if you just look at a smattering of the entrepreneurs out there that have been successful, very like, it's definitely a minority probably that have an MBA, it seems like. So, so I, I think you're, you're primed well and, um, yeah, just go start something. You know, I mean, I think that, that, uh, the work, there, there's a great quote, which is the, the work will teach you how to do it. I love that quote. And so a lot of folks are worried and they don't think that they'll have the skills, but the work will teach you how to do it. And so if you, if you just go start the work you'll, and you have an active mind, you'll, you'll ramp. Yeah. Thanks. My question's about, I've been in sales uh, as an AE and a sales manager for some time. And I'm curious about when you approached the product development, how you looked at the market because sales is so complex and the different nuances of commissioning on margin, commissioning totally. on a SaaS model, and it's so complicated. How did you really attack that from a product perspective with the with an end acquisition in mind? Yeah, so I also love I love that question. And um so I'm obsessed with hard problems. <laughs> like um I, I I look at some of these amazing entrepreneurs that are billionaires and they're tackling some of the hardest problems in the world and um, but at a much, much lower level, I too, am, I'm really obsessed with difficult problems. I like challenging problems. And sometimes I, I'm very jealous of people who start jealous in quotes. I'm, I'm, I'm not a jealous person, but like I'm, I'm, ex- I, I look at some other people who would pick a problem that's relatively easy to solve and then just create a billion dollar outcome. Um, it's never as easy as it looks, but um, but this problem we picked is, is a particularly challenging problem. And it's kind of funny because when I told my mom and dad about the idea, I said, Hey, I want to go build Spiff. We want, we're going to do commissions and we're going to automate commissions. And, and I think so like they, like so many people, when I first told them that idea, were kind of idea, we're kind of like, wait, what? Like, isn't it just 10% times revenue? Like how, how hard can this be? Right. And, um, do I even really need software to do that? That was actually a legitimately very big fear I had when I started Spiff. It was a huge fear. It was just like, I mean, do you need software to do this? And um, the, the reality that you just brought up so well is that it's actually the opposite. That, that it's the opposite of my fear. Actually, commissions are insanely complicated. Really, really hard. Um, there's 
trailers, there's overrides, there's overwrites, there's um, roll-ups, there's clawbacks, there's spot spiffs, there's bonuses, um, there's, uh, you know, um, true-ups. And, I mean, it is really hard to build software that automates all that. And, frankly, I think that's part of our special sauce and part of our vision that we're still realizing and will continue to realize with Salesforce. And, really, it took building... Um, it really took building a very Excel-friendly and similar to Excel um, programming language to be able to solve that problem. So it's it's almost like a language um, that is the language is the same language you'd use in a spreadsheet, but it interacts natively and in real time with objects from your connected systems like Salesforce. So you can. Literally, you can go into Spiff and you can be like, I want to get all the opportunities that closed in this period for this rep, and I want to sum over them. And it will just, you could write that a lot like Excel, but you're actually using the word opportunity in there, like from Salesforce. So it kind of merges those two worlds. And I think that was a bit of the special sauce. It is a really complex problem, and there's still stuff we need. We're, we're continuing to chip away at that problem, and probably will be for several more years. But thanks so much for the question. Yeah. Hey, Scott Frazier. Wow. Presumably, at some point, Salesforce faced the question, should we acquire Spiff, or should we build it, or should we acquire a, stiff, a, a Spiff competitor? Yeah. Can you give us some insight into how Salesforce looked at those options and uh -huh. why they did what they did? Yeah, and, and on some level, surprisingly, Scott or not, I'm still learning how the decision was made. And... Um, and I also want to be sensitive to the players involved at Salesforce that I would never say anything that would uh, potentially be non-public. And so I'll, I'll just say, um, I'll speak a little bit at a high level about some interesting facts I've learned as I've gone through this acquisition process. Um, acquisitions, like many, many things in our, in our world, start with a human somewhere. And they start with a person, um, usually a person that has quite a bit of power in an organization. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, it's surprising that you would, might think like Mark Benioff would say like, you know what, it's been long enough, we gotta have commissions. Like, come on, we're the biggest CRM in the world and we don't do commissions. It, I think Mark has probably had that thought. I haven't had the chance to talk with Mark. But I don't think that was the, uh, the primary impetus for the acquisition of SPIF. I think it started lower down in the organization and I actually know, um, and I'm actually deeply grateful to this person. I actually know kind of the person or persons who are involved there. And, and you could probably guess, but again, for, sense, for, for reasons where I want to be sensitive to privacy, I won't name their names. But essentially, it's usually someone who has a deep understanding of the business, um, who is looking for growth. And they uh, typically have a pretty holistic um, strat strategic roadmap for what they want to go build over a certain period of time. And you are on that roadmap somewhere. You're already there. So for you, those of you who are starting companies and are looking at or, or, or running a company and you're looking at selling, you're, there's somewhere, probably there's a lot of uh, larger companies out there that have a strategic roadmap, and you're probably already on it. And so that happened with Spiff. We were on uh, a strategic roadmap. And, um, and then they made the buy-build decision. And um, the buy-build decision, I don't think... I don't think build is as common as we think it is. Um, some companies have a bias toward building, 
it, it's pretty rare, honestly. I, I think this is why a lot of M&A act, activity happens. Um, Salesforce has been incredibly successful. I'm sure they've had a bunch of um, acquisitions that have failed. I'm sure they have. Um, and I'm sorry, Salesforce, if I'm saying things I shouldn't. But, um, but they've clearly had a lot that have been extremely, extremely successful and have driven enormous growth within their business. And it's a bit like venture capital, probably a lower risk version of venture capital where do they need every single acquisition to be a hundred X? Probably not. You know, they can have a couple that are going to not do that great and they're going to get a couple that are going to crush it. Um, we are definitely working very hard to be in that latter uh, category. Um, so I don't think the buy, uh, decision, at least I haven't had a lot of data yet from where I'm sitting, you know, a month into Salesforce. I don't think that there was a huge amount of investment in the, sorry, in the build decision. I think they were like, ah, we're probably not going to build this. I do know that there were a couple of other buy, uh, conversations, and this will be a fun thing for some of you entrepreneurs as well. Um, we're in an interesting time around buying, um, especially when you start a company like I did that had almost immediate product market fit and was competitive from day one. So there were competitors. So there's a field of folks that Salesforce was looking at in terms of buying. Um, some of those were much larger than Spiff, but probably had some legacy uh, baggage <laughs> that came along with it. So that's another thing you can keep in mind. You're often more uh, attractive than you think, even relative to much larger uh, potential purchases for a buyer because you, you don't bring a lot of legacy baggage. Um, the second thing is even among other uh, new age vendors, because there are several, there's probably three other new age vendors in our space that are viable uh, acquisition targets. Uh, they're going to do a whole bunch of a, a assessment on how good your product is. They're going to talk to your customers and then they're going to think about price and they will think about price. And if some other vendor isn't willing to sell for, you know, two X your price, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a, that's a real thing. So I, 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 that's probably the best I can answer Scott, but did you have any other follow-up questions there that answer your question? Not really. We, we, we approach it from the VC's perspective. We often run into companies where we say Salesforce or Amazon or Shopco, whoever, not Shopco, whoever needs, needs this functionality, they're either going to build it or buy it. If they buy the company we're supporting, we're all going to make out like bandits. If they buy a competitor, it's going to be terrible. So we're trying to figure out why why they might buy company A and not company B. Yeah. One over the other. We'll figure out how to evaluate it. Is, is the company we're supporting likely to be purchased or unlikely? So you could have given me some help to, some helpful things. And there's a lot you can do to influence that. So we we were very proactive around creating a relationship very early on with Salesforce. Salesforce, in my opinion, there were two great outcomes for Spiff. For Spiff. Um, Salesforce or IPO. Those were the two great outcomes for Spiff. There are a couple of other buyers there, but those other buyers would have been, I think, not nearly the synergy value that we would have with a Salesforce, and therefore the uh, acquisition multiples were likely to be significantly depressed relative. Would that an IPO eventually if Salesforce had acquired one of your competitors? Uh, yeah, but I, th I think so, but I think, um, or we could have sold to another competitor. So I don't think it was like, uh, like there's some great competitors out there that we still see every day in the market. And, um, you know, I'm actually 
fairly close with most of their CEOs. I'm, I tend to be on the field. I want to tear, we want to tear each other's faces off uh, after the field. I, I love NBA games where they just go up and hug each other. Right. And that's kind of how I, that's the mental model I try to use. And I don't think they're, um, I don't think, I think several of them are going to get great outcomes. Honestly. Um, I think it does set you back three to five years. So, uh, you know, the markets are changing like crazy right now with AI. So three to five years was in my mind. Uh, I, I'm very grateful that we're, we're at Salesforce. Extremely grateful. Yeah. Hey, Jaron. My name is Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Um, two questions. One's a fun one. And please don't give us the boring, I'm going to go put my head back down and go to work, answer on this one. Um, and the second is more business related. But the first one is obviously congratulations on the deal. Thanks, Brandon. Um, what did you do or what are you going to do that's fun with your family to celebrate and some of your newfound liquidity? Um, how are you actually going to, you know, enjoy it a little bit. And then secondly, um, as you think about how you can scale within Salesforce, I mean, Spiff is the kind of thing that you can put on top of everything there and distribute it to all of their customers. This could be a really massive business over time. And so I pretend Salesforce isn't listening for a second, but how do you think about yourself, you know, scaling within that and really becoming a leader of that business uh, as it continues to grow to potentially massive scale within yeah. Salesforce? Thanks, Brandon. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about how to answer your first question. Um, I think, I think entrepreneurs, I think a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs have like a, a, a low grade mental illness as all of us do. And, um, and, uh, one of it is this like addiction to, to hard things and like wanting to do this stuff over and over and over again. And so, um, I didn't take much of a vacation between, uh, capture and, and spiff. And, um, you know, my family has been incredibly supportive of me and I'm, I, I love them so much and I'm so grateful for them. And, you know, we, like a lot of families have our challenges, right? And so, uh, one of the things we did, we went to the Caribbean. So we, we took a, we took a week and went to the Caribbean. It was great. Um, and that was definitely a, a nice breather. And then in terms, I'm actually asking myself some really hard questions right now too, around like what more do I need to do to be a, a better husband and father? And how, how do I, how can I double down on that? So yeah, those are some of the things we're doing. Um, I don't really want to, I, I hope that my values stay intact. And, um, to be honest, I, I don't, there's, there's a lot of great things that money can do, but um, there's a lot of really bad things it can tend to as well. It tends to amplify things. Right. And so, um, I, honestly, I think we're trying to spend a lot of time trying to be like, how, how do we stay grounded and, in, in the things that are most important to us. So love, love that question. Um, and your second question was, how do we blow this up at Salesforce? Um, oh my gosh, I'm so blown away by the team at Salesforce. Um, my boss is Kathan Karkanis. He's amazing. Um, I've been really getting close with Marianne Patel, who uh, is the SVP of product for Sales Cloud. Um, and then I have a technical partner in, um, named Sean and I'm going to butcher his last name. So, and I'm, I'm still learning it to be honest. So, um, I, I agree with you. I mean, going from, you know, 17 quota carrying AEs, um, we did have an SDR, an amazing SDR team. And, um, but going from 17 quota carrying AEs to, let's call it like 8,000, <laughs> 8,000, I mean, it's crazy what we can go do. I mean, I'm, I don't even know. I mean, let's, let's catch up in a, in another couple of months. I mean, oh my gosh, we could, I, every single one of their customers 
has sales commissions almost, you know, so like it's not entirely true, but pretty close. So, um, it, it could be really big and we're working on rolling that out as fast as we can. Hey, Jaron. Hey. Uh, Tell us how you built your team at Spiff. Were there people from your network? Did you hire some? Did you recruit some? How did you put your team together? Chris, it's so good to see you, first of all. Thanks for coming. Oh, my gosh. Um, Chris and I are neighbors and really good friends. And we're, we're like, uh, we stay in touch more over LinkedIn than anything else, which is sad. Um, but uh, so, so sorry. Your question is, like, how did I build the team? Yeah, how did you build out your team? Yeah. Um, team is, is so important. And yeah, I've learned a ton this time around about building up my team. So up until now, as a, as a younger entrepreneur in Utah that didn't have much of a known track record, it was a little tricky, frankly, to, to know, uh, to, to recruit. I couldn't just call up, you know, I'm going to take an example of someone that I love dearly Anna Fisher, who is our chief marketing officer, who previously was uh, one of the most senior marketing folks at zoom info. Uh, which is an incredibly successful Boston-based company, and she's out of Boston. I couldn't just pick up the phone to Anna and say, "Hey, come join me at CapShare." She would have been like, "Yeah, whatever. You know, I'm not this weird guy out of Utah." You know, and so um, I'd say I kind of have equal parts. Like uh, the founding team for me is pretty easy because now I've done it multiple times, and there are people that you you just know are going to crush it and that you've worked with in the past. Um, again, the most important colleague in my career, and it would be silly for me to sit up here without giving him an enormous amount of gratitude is Matt Stapleton. Um, we're, we're essentially almost like two in a box, you know, up until now you've kind of, if you get Jaron, you get Matt, if you get Matt, you get Jaron. Um, he's, he's incredible. Um, so, so like guys like Matt or gals like Matt, I have a, a couple of folks like that, um, that I, I know I could just pick up the phone and be like, Hey, let's do something. Um, and then one big learning I had mainly through Sean and Norwest, honestly, is we used a, a recruiting firm, uh, multiple different recruiting firms. Uh, but the one that I used the most, uh, is a guy named Gary Constance at Diversa Partners. For those of you who are at the stage where you want to look at, look him up. Amazing. I actually gave him a little bit of equity because we did so many searches through his firm and Gary introduced me to a lot of the uh, he, he was the one who kind of opened up the world to Spiff. And this, this coincided with the pandemic where everyone realized it doesn't really matter where a company is based. And so this has been, I think this is, so I'm, I'm old enough and I was a, I'm a, let's call it maybe a first generation VC guy here in Utah, like part of that first wave. And I can tell you guys uh, and gals, folks, let me say that. Um, I can tell you folks that like rewind 10 years ago the biggest problem in Utah was actually how do we actually recruit really talented folks here at the senior level of an organization that have done it multiple times before? Because they don't want to come to a place, I mean, frankly, that has weird liquor laws and like other stuff that and and has, you know, a, a, a kind of a mixed reputation for, for a bunch of different things. It was tricky to get folks to come here. I, By the way, I bleed Utah. I love Utah. Um, you know, so... Um, but that was a really big challenge. That was probably our biggest challenge during that era of venture capital. And, um, that has completely shifted since the pandemic. Like it's gone. You can get anyone you want to work for a Utah based company, anyone. And, um, if you have a great VC, like I did in Sean at Norwest, you know, and then working with a, a top tier recruiting firm, Diversa Partners, um, we brought in Anna, we brought in, 
another amazing uh, CRO early on named Matt Marshall. We brought in Matt Gar, who's our current CRO. Um, we brought in um, two chief product officers that were both in, in their way just completely amazing. And so that's how we've – so it's a combination of network and then using great hiring firms. That's yeah, great to see you. Thanks so much for your question. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man. I, this is, I feel like I'm, I'm uh, pitching to the home crowd here. This is awesome. Yeah. Quick, quick one for you. Uh, how did you decide or how do you decide when it's time to raise money? Yeah. Um, so, uh, that's, that's been a, that's been a, that's been a highly context dependent question for each company I'm, I've been at. So I'm curious if there's a question behind that question. Do you think you could have had the exit that you had without like, okay. VCs and, and I imagine that was a strong accelerator to your success. Yes, yes. What? Are, okay, now I totally see where you're coming from. Yes, I think so. I've bootstrapped. I bootstrapped Scalar Partners, um, which is now, which I sold on a management buyout. Now is now run by two two great folks, uh, Zach Nugent and Matt Tillotson. Um, that was a bootstrap business, highly profitable. Um, still to this day, I think is quite profitable. I don't know, but I think so. I, I would guess so. Um, I I. Large, I didn't bootstrap, but I kind of was like on the border between bootstrap and funding for CapShare. I mean, it's two point one million dollars. I think, I think the management team put in around three hundred of that, maybe a little more. So say one point six, one point seven million dollars of outside capital. So a pretty small amount of outside capital, actually, if you think about it. And then with Spiff, you know, raised well over a hundred million dollars. Um, so I, I feel like I, I am uniquely positioned to kind of answer that question. Um, I've seen it all, all different ways, like pure bootstrap, uh, kind of very lightweight amount of capital and then like a heavy amount of capital. Um, I would say if you have the means, the best way to do it is to fund the early rounds yourself so you don't get diluted. And then to, and then given how fast technology is evolving to raise a ton of money, that's, that's the best. It's, it's just, Things are moving too fast now, and I, I think you'll just get lapped if you don't have a lot of cash. Um, for, for a lot of, again, it's very context dependent. If you're starting some services company, that could be wildly off. But if you're going to go build a high tech company, a software company, that's likely to be true. Um, so that's the ideal way to do it. That's not to say that you can't find an edge, and we see them all the time where it's maybe not as competitive or you don't need to raise as much money. Utah used to be known for that. Um, we used to be known for uh, the entradas of the world where they essentially raised nothing and became a billion-dollar company. Um, I mean, that's amazing. I think it's getting harder to do that, especially if you're targeting a well-known area. Sometimes, again, you can do that in – you're not doing a generative AI company. You're doing some some other niche company. Maybe it uses generative AI, but it's, it's more niche and folks don't know about it. It's often quite possible to do it a nichier company with less capital. Sorry, it's it's like super context dependent, so I'm trying my best, but great question. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you had mentioned to build relationships with people like Salesforce long before an acquisition was even on the radar. Can you talk to to the journey about what that looked like, what those relationships looked like? Was it just accessing their API and stuff like that, or was it meeting with perhaps key stakeholders that you could potentially you know, lead to where you are now? Yeah. What did that look like in building those relationships? Yeah, and um, this is one where I, I can totally see where you're coming from, where like, hey, I'm, I'm in Utah. 
I really want to have a relationship with this uh, $200, $300 billion market cap company that has 80,000 people, 80,000 people out. Where do I start? You know? Um, and I love where you're going, but it's like, Hey, do I become a member of the app exchange? Do I start talking to everybody I can that works there? Do I network my way? Um, you can do all that, but I will tell you what, what made a difference for me was raising money from Norwest partners. Sean Jacobson there, who's been mentioned knows the ventures team really well, including the head of Salesforce Ventures at the time, uh, individual named Matt Garrett. And um, and I know now Paul Drews, who runs it now. Um, amazing people. But Sean has like a personal relationship with them. And so all he has to do is pick up the phone or email them and say, hey, will you take a meeting with Smith? So I'm just saying like one is this crazy hard process, which can work, but it's very dicey. You have, have no idea how it's going to, this kind of bottom up approach, try to build your, your reputation with Salesforce, you know, get on the app exchange, talk to as many people as you can talk to sales reps, try to activate them. And we were doing all that, but it's so funny how one call I'm talking to the head of Salesforce ventures, they decide to invest. Now I have a great relationship with Salesforce. You know what I mean? So I hope that helps. Yes. Let's let's take one more here. Yeah. Paula, did you know that that investor had that relationship when we were getting the capital from them? No, I didn't. I didn't. Sean, uh, Sean is amazing. I I I probably know like three percent of the relationships that he has. So, um, no, I didn't. I just knew Sean was going to be a great partner for Spiff. And it seemed like for an entrepreneur or a company raising capital, that that should be part of their due diligence on. Yeah, and you definitely could make that a part of it if you wanted to. Um, yeah, Sean impressed me for so many reasons. I, I'm just really grateful that I chose him. But yeah, let's end with this, Jared. And by the way, thank you so much for yeah. for being here. This has been incredible. Thank you. I would love your take on like the current macroeconomic macro environment of building a company. Mm-hmm. And you've you've touched on this in a number of your answers. Artificial intelligence how that's going to change things. You, you said something I thought was really interesting around, you may need a lot of money right now, mm-hmm. uh, given AI. Well, how do you think AI changes everything? Oh my goodness. Um, that's a great question. Um, do we have like a couple of hours or do we? Go ahead. Uh, no, yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, I, I'll just, I will keep it brief. I, I would say if you are in software or if you're thinking about starting a, a software company and you are not, um, taking an AI first mentality. I, I can't, I don't, I, I guess I'm creative enough to see that there software so big. There's probably some niches where you could do okay and survive and maybe even well. But generally I think the answer is if you're not taking an AI first approach right now, I think you're dead in the water, like dead. So I, I just wouldn't even, I just wouldn't even do it to be honest. As far as I'm concerned, like, and I'll, I'll keep this hypothetical. If I were to start a new company right now, um, and I have several ideas of what, what I would love to do, um, I would literally start with like, okay, the interface is going to be completely AI focused. Like it's going to be built on AI. That's, that's how I would start it. So I'll just keep it brief. I mean, there's so much behind this. It's a crazy time. I know there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of fear. Um, those two go hand in hand at times in life, right. And at times in history. And, um, 
that's clearly the moment we're at. I mean, we are we are at a an epic, uh, epic and epical like a, a seminal time where there, we're going to see a transition from one time, epic to another. Um, so yeah. Just to follow up on that though, like, do you think because it takes a ton of cash that the big companies like Salesforce, Apple, I mean, name the big company, yes. they just have this insane advantage that probably didn't exist in the early 2000s or the beginning of the internet boom, right? Yes. Like now these huge companies, because of the cash they have on hand, because of the talent they have, and in particular because of the data they have, you're yes. competing with them now. Yeah, you That's hard. Are. That's hard. But, I mean, I kind of look at like – the way I look at that question is um, we're probably all going to measure our lives to some extent pre and post AGI, right? And um, until there's AGI – then there are crazy, it's actually a great time to use AI to go tackle a problem until we hit AGI. And then I think all bets are off because who knows what's going to happen at that point. So yes, I think the the large uh, companies have a significant advantage if you're going after AGI. Um, or if, but you might even be able to start a company there if you happen to know like an Oxford researcher that, that has some new way of like thinking about uh, building a model or something. But I don't have those deep connections. I didn't go to MIT or Stanford. And um, so, so as an entrepreneur, I'm not going after like AGI. Um, what, I, what I would do though is, and I think there's a good example that just yesterday Sora came out, which is, yeah, yeah we've all probably seen that. I mean, Think about OpenAI. It's kind of weird. It's like, well, like now you're actually giving text to video. You have text to image. You have, and then you have this general chatbot. I mean, it, it it's weird because it's like, well, why? That like the the technology is so mind blowing. It's like, why doesn't it just take over our lives right now? Like, you know, what I mean, why why do we ever why do we even have to work? But we it still can't do a lot of things. Actually, like shockingly, it can. It seems it what it can do is so mind blowing that we forget that these are still like big things, but there's still like a millions of possibilities of other things that this could be applied to. So I actually think it's kind of a good time to go do that. There might be one more bite of the apple. I don't know. Um, you know, I'm saying that it might be a relatively short period of time. It could be longer. I'll leave that to you all to predict. Um, but yeah, I think that's how I think about it. Give it up for Jaron Paul. Thank you so much.